What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. We are live from Trinity University at the 2020 Sports Medicine Symposium. This is Dr. Jason Magonier doing talking about upper extremity evals and what he does to check the neurological assessment of the uh, again upper extremity neuro eval. So live from Trinity University, I am your host Jeremy Jackson, and join with me as we go through the steps that Dr. Magonia uses, and this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash upper extremity neuro evals. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash upper extremity neuro evals, where I'll have links to the presentation that was provided to us and also the, the Facebook live stream link there. So thanks for joining us on the Sports Medicine Broadcast. Everybody hear me? I'm not used to being on microphone, so... If it's too loud, just buzz, tell me, okay? I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you all just got a break because this is going to be awesome. Everybody got coffee? We're talking about nerves. Everybody's super excited about it. All right, cool. Disclosures. Um, I took this when we were here at the Alamo Bowl. That's the Alamo, if you didn't know. It's from my hotel room. Uh, I don't get paid to do anything other than the jobs I get paid to do. So if somebody's looking for somebody to pay extra money to, call me. I'm happy to take it. So for you guys today, what we want to talk about, we want to talk about the neuroanatomy. We want to talk about the neurological examination of the upper extremity. Um, I was told I had 45 minutes to do this. I'd laughed and said that's not possible. But the good news is, is you guys are all pretty familiar with 95% of my talk. A lot of this is going to be a review. At least I hope it is. If it's not, discreetly raise your hand and I'll slow down. Okay. So we're, my main goal today is to really get into that differential diagnosis of when somebody has something neurologically wrong with their upper extremity, how do we kind of tease that out? Where are we looking for these types of things? We're going to talk about some nerve entrapments that have probably seen you, but you may not have seen them. Uh, recognize some neurological tests that can help you differentiate some of those things. And then talk about some neurological conditions that can cause symptoms in the upper extremity that may not be nerve specific. And then those exam findings that are pathologic, those things that scare us a little bit, that make us kind of perk up our antenna and, and refer a little faster than normal. So we're going to do a lot of talking about anatomy, okay? So buckle up, get ready. Anybody watch Grey's Anatomy? Yeah, I don't. I'm a doctor. The medicine's terrible. I highly suggest you pay no attention to the medical stuff. Only listen to the drama part. The call rooms are not that active in my hospital. All right. So let's get into the anatomy. We're going to talk about some cranial nerves. There is one cranial nerve that really affects the upper extremity more than most, and that's the spinal accessory nerve, that cranial nerve number 11. Um, it comes out through that jugular foramen there, you can see as it, it exits, and comes down and innervates that trapezius, the upper trapezius and that sternocleidomastoid. Nothing earth-shattering here. During my physical exam, I usually make sure they can shrug their shoulders and turn their head side to side. The thing here to remember is that the sternocleidomastoid is kind of a contralateral muscle. So the left muscle turns the head to the right because of the way it attaches. It attaches at the, at the sternum and the mastoid and it pulls and turns the head the way away from the muscle. Um, I notice a lot of my sports medicine fellows get that confused, so just wanted to point that out. The cervical spine itself is huge in the upper extremity because that's where everything comes from, okay? So when we look at this, we have to rule out something severe in the cervical spine. Um, and if it's chronic, we have to rule out something like bulging discs 
or um, facet disease, arthritis, especially in older patients. In most of your younger athletes, it's not going to be that arthritis-y type picture. It's going to be more of a bulging disc or something acute. Um, this brings up my first point. History is everything. History, 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 history. All right? So if somebody comes into you and says, I got neck pain when X happened, X is important. Pay attention to that. Find out as much information as you can because that's really going to point your laser in the right direction when you're trying to figure out what's causing this problem. If somebody comes to you and says, I've had neck pain for six months, you should probably roll your eyes and be like, why am I finding out about this today? And then you should start figuring out what X was six months ago. And for middle school kids and high school kids, and especially college kids, finding that out can be tricky. A lot of times they didn't pay attention to it back then because they thought it would just go away. So really pay attention to your history. So for cervical stuff, especially disc stuff, this is more that chronic thing. You know, I turn my head a certain way and I get this shock down my arm or I get a tingling in my fingertips. Pay attention to all those types of things, all right? The cervical nerve roots can definitely get pinched. By far and away, the most common thing is a cervical disc, all right? Now, in some people, you get those folks with facets. So the facets are those articulating joints in the spine that kind of stop rotation and stop hyperextension and hyperflexion, especially in the cervical spine. And those facets have joint capsules around them too. And those joint capsules can, can swell. So sometimes you can get nerve root impingement from that. Uh, one of the ways to do it is either put traction on that area and see if it reproduces their symptoms or even to compress it. So there's some debate here. There, Netters is calling spurlings this maneuver here. You'll find some people that do spurlings where they tilt their head back, tilt it to the side, and then do an axial compression. And if that reproduces the symptoms, they'll call that a positive spurlings as well. So spurlings maneuver here can help you. Range of motion in the cervical spine is huge. Make sure when you tell them to look up, they're not just using their eyes because that's the number one thing that, you know, 42 IQ says. I'm just going to look straight up. Make sure they lean their head all the way back. They look down at the floor. They look left and right so that you're making sure they have actual full range of motion and they're not compensating with either their thoracic spine or their upper extremities. Sometimes you can get actual, like, the easy stuff for you guys is hit in football, arms and legs went numb. That's easy, right? Collar, board, hospital. You don't have to make any decisions. The, I'm talking about things that they come into the athletic training room a couple of days later or something's been bothering them for a while. This isn't an acute disaster talk, okay? Uh, dermatomes, I will tell you this, most of you are probably more familiar with the color dermatome map here that has the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine, sacral spine. I like to use the Asia dermatome map, it's the American Spine Injury Association, because especially in the upper extremity, dermatomes can be notoriously unpredictable. There's a lot of variation with whether C4 is involved in nerves, C5, T1, C8. So. I like to use this map here, and this map will be in your handouts. It's in your Google Docs. Um, it's a freely available one. If you just Google Asia spine injury, it will, it's the first thing that pops up under images. But every little dot here represents where you should palpate to find out that dermatome, whether it's intact or not. That way you're not running your hand all the way up the arm trying to figure out exactly where it is. So like, say for, let's talk about C5 or C6. You know, if we're talking about C6, if you touch right here over the top of the thumb, if they feel that, it's intact. You don't have to keep working your way up. If it's intact distally, it's intact proximally. Same for myotomes. Myotomes here can be very 
um, variable, very variable is not a great way to phrase it, but they're a little bit more predictable. The motor function of the upper extremity is a little bit more predictable, but again, I go back to Asia. Um, it talks here in the upper extremity, so C5 is that elbow flexion, C6 is that wrist extension, C7 is that push off or elbow extension, C8 is, are those finger flexors, so if they can flex that DIP of the finger like that, and then T1 is if they can open their hand and abduct that little finger and do it against resistance. So that's more T1. Um, play around with it, you know. Any, any dancers in here, you can make up a dance five, six, seven, do whatever you wanna do. But if you can remember those movements, if those are grossly intact, those cervical nerve roots are intact. That doesn't necessarily mean those nerves that innervate those muscles are perfect, but it means those nerve roots are there. Okay, speaking of nerve roots, remember in the cervical spine, we have seven vertebrae, but eight nerve roots, and that's because of the way those nerves exit the foramina. So in the cervical spine, they exit over the top of the pedicle until you get to C7, and then they start to exit underneath, which is why they had to add that extra one. Whoever started naming them was like, okay, cool, C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, C6, C7, dang it. So remember, there's a C8, don't forget C8. Also, pay attention to reflexes. Reflexes are huge, and this is something in the upper extremity that not a lot of people are confident with. They don't feel comfortable doing upper extremity reflexes. They're not particularly hard to do. Any reflex is the same. You put something over the top of the thing you're testing and you hit it and see what happens. You just gotta make sure that they're relaxed, okay? So remember, C5 is really that biceps tendon reflex that you put your finger here, you smack it, and they flex their arm. C6 is that brachioradialis, so a little bit more distal, a little bit more radial. And then C7 is that tricep. So the hard one to test is the tricep because you gotta get them to relax their arm in this position, but it can definitely be done. All right, so those nerves that come directly from the cervical roots, there aren't a lot that we deal with that we really pay a lot of attention to in sports medicine, but there are a couple. Um, the supraclavicular nerve is really a sensory only nerve and you gotta pay attention to that sensory versus sensory and motor but that supraclavicular nerve kind of gives you that sensation over the top of your shoulder. And that comes directly off the nerve roots. It doesn't run out of the brachial plexus, but it comes directly from the nerve roots, okay? So if you're getting a sensory deficit here and you've lost an entire myotome, you should be looking way up proximal. Something proximal has happened, all right? And that's, that's kind of how you start to tease it. The more distal something is going on, the more distal the lesion is. I'm sorry, the more, yes, yeah, so if you're isolated down here and it's not happening up here, start thinking things are happening more distal. If it's happening through the whole arm, you should be paying attention all the way up at the top, okay? And then I always throw the phrenic nerve in here because we don't think about it a lot. It's not really a sports medicine nerve because it's not one of those that we work out a lot, but we really probably should be paying more attention to the diaphragm. Um, I'm not a huge fan of rhymes because in medicine, everybody thinks because it rhymes, it's true not a true statement, but we do come up with a lot of them, but C3, 4, and 5, keep the diaphragm alive, is really a pretty decent one if you're trying to remember the nerve roots for the diaphragm and the phrenic nerve. It's more important that we give it credit for. We do have a lot of diaphragmatic dysfunction. So we're gonna talk about the brachial plexus. Yay, all those excited faces. How many of you had to memorize it and draw it? A thousand times, 10,000 times? So everybody's, oh God. Here we go. Why did I come to this talk? He's gonna talk about the brachial plexus. What if he calls on me and asks me which one it is? Hey, you in the back. 
you're going to be okay. I'm not going to call on anybody. Everything's going to be fine. But we are going to talk about the brachial plexus. All right. The brachial plexus is part of the peripheral nervous system. It's not central nervous system. It's the peripheral nervous system. So you need to pay attention to that. That's important to tell the difference between a central lesion and a peripheral lesion. Okay. And then you get the old netters talk about, oh my God, this is super complicated. I'm going to try to break it down for you a little bit. It's divided up into those um, roots. Again, we talked about those roots. And then you got the trunks. And then you have the divisions. And then you have the cords. And you have the branches. So does everybody know the mnemonic for how to remember this? What the order they go in? Roots, trunks, all that kind of stuff. I always learned it as Randy Travis drinks cold beer. <laughs> if you're not a country music fan, find somebody who has the same initials that sings something differently. But Randy... Travis drinks cold beer. I will tell you this, you don't talk about the divisions very much because not a lot comes out of the divisions. The divisions are really just the merging of the cords and the trunks, or from the trunks to the cords and those crossovers. So we won't talk too much about division. There is definitely some very variability person to person. Some people get a lot of C4 contribution uh, coming in down here. Some people get very little T1. Some people get some T2 contribution. So it's not 100%, but as a general rule, this is pretty predictable. All right. So we're going to start with those that just arrive directly from the brachial plexus, from the roots, those more proximal lesions. That dorsal scapular nerve is really one of those that helps with um, maintaining that scapular function, so that levator scapula that will pull up that scapula itself, and those rhomboids that will retract the scapula. So if you have a lesion in that, you'll get that, that protracted winging of the scapula. And then the long thoracic nerve, we all know about because it's that one that comes way down here and that innervates serratus anterior. It has no sensory function whatsoever. And that's the one where you do the press off and you get that retracted winging of the scapula down. So if you're seeing winging of the scapula, think up close into the nerve roots itself, okay? Or out peripherally where they're being compressed. Both can be compressed and we'll talk about those later. Um, brings up another point. When you're examining the upper extremity, especially the shoulder, have them take their shirt off if they're in a place where you can do it. You'll find a lot of things that you, you, you've missed if you have them take their shirt off. With girls, sports bra, just fine. All right, so that superior trunk or that upper trunk, we're going to talk about the suprascapular nerve. This is a really, really important nerve, especially in sports medicine, because it innervates two very important rotator cuff muscles, the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus, okay? So this nerve can actually be a little bit tricky because it innervates both, but it can also be very useful because we can find entrapments, and I'll talk about those later, but we can tell it's where certain lesions are because it does innervate two muscles in succession. So we talk about supraspinatus, obviously that abduction movement, and infraspinatus external rotation. And then the nerve that's subclavius, super, super important nerve. I examine the subclavius muscle, never. I never look at the subclavius muscle. Like I can't tell you the last time I tested subclavius. Just know that there's no sensory function to it either. I threw it on there because it's out there. Um, that lateral cord, this is one where I think a lot of people forget that the lateral cord of the brachial plexus also innervates the pec muscle. Um, in the upper extremity evaluation, especially if somebody's having numbness or tingling, I very rarely see somebody come in and, and examine the pectoralis muscle to see if they can fire it. Um, we're not looking for that bunched up test or with the press test, but if you do a press test and they cannot fire that pec muscle, or if you're trying to test adduction, and they can't do it, start thinking in that lateral cord because that's a pretty proximal muscle. 
And if they can't do that and they're having distal problems, think way up high in that lateral cord. Okay? The musculocutaneous nerve we think about all the time because that's the one that innervates bicep, coracobrachialis, brachialis. It lets us flex that elbow. It gives us that strength. It lets us do our curls. So we think about that all the time. What we don't think about is the sensory aspect of musculocutaneous nerve. It's called the musculocutaneous nerve because it has sensory innervation. And it kind of does that lateral forearm or that radial side of forearm here. Okay. So the medial cord, um, that medial pectoral nerve is really the only one we think about much. Uh, again, test the pec when you're looking at neurovascular problems in the upper extremity. Don't forget the pec. The posterior cord is really the longest one, and this is the one where um, we see the most in the upper extremity because it does so much for us, especially when you get to the axillary nerve. Uh, but that thoracodorsal nerve is legit. The latissimus dorsi is a muscle we don't think about a lot in the upper extremity, but it attaches up here in that proximal humerus, and it really is that ladder climbing muscle, right? So if somebody can take and do this movement right here, so they're bringing down or adducting and kind of internally rotating at the same time, but it's that what allows us to climb the ladder, and that's how you test it. I have them come right up here, resist here, and have them push down, and if they can do this movement here, the latissimus dorsi is intact, okay? Again, those nerve roots up high, C5, C6. But you can see, when we're talking about the posterior cord, we get innervation all the way from C5 down to C8. So a lot of that crossover has happened there. Uh, the upper subscapularis, that subscap muscle, internal rotation, that belly press test, don't let them pull off of their belly, is super important. Again, the lower subscapular. This is where we start to get with teres major. Teres major is more in the adductor family. Um, it's hard to isolate the teres major and test it specifically, but if you're having a lot of weakness in adduction, think about that subscapular. And then the axillary, that's the one that innervates the deltoid. That's the one that really gives us that, that abduction after 15 degrees. So the first 15 degrees is kind of supraspinatus. That initiates that abduction. And when that lever arm of the deltoid can really take over, we get the strength and abduction from the deltoid itself. These are the ones we think about after shoulder dislocations. The axillary nerve can be very easily damaged after shoulder dislocation. So make sure you're testing that sensory right out here over the lateral shoulder. Make sure you're testing that initiation of motion. It doesn't mean they're going to have five out of five strength right after they dislocated their shoulder, okay? Even with it still out, you can test to see if the abductor is intact. All they have to be able to do is initiate the movement. If they can initiate it, don't torture them and make them try to get it up here, because if their shoulder's out, especially anteriorly, they're not gonna get there anyway. Then you can feel safe, do the reduction, and then again, test it after you do the reduction. Terry's Minor is another one of those, um, kind of has a fun little test, uh, the hornblower's test. Anybody know what the hornblower's test is? It's basically like you're holding a trumpet like this, and you try to externally, if you can't hold it up, if it falls, if it keeps falling into internal rotation, your teres minor is out. So if they can hold it up like this, they're externally rotating, and that's teres minor activity. It kind of isolates out the infraspinatus. It's not perfect, but it's a pretty fun test to say. Um, so let's talk about the nerves themselves, because there's three really big nerves that come down all the way into the hand. And that ulnar nerve is one that um, you're probably going to see a lot of problems with. That's the C7 and C8 usually. usually gets to T1. C7's kind of sometimes there, sometimes not. It comes off the medial cord of the brachial plexus. And so when you think about the sensory stuff for the ulnar nerve, I think we've all heard, you know, these little fingers out here. So in blue, that's kind of the sensory distribution on the palmar or volar view and then the dorsal view out there. Um, 
I, I didn't type it all out, but you can see a picture. For the motor, the motor for the ulnar nerve is pretty important because when you talk about that, that um, deep branch, it comes across and it does the hypothenar muscle, so those muscles kind of on the, the pinky side of the hand, those ones where you slam your hand on the desk, those hypothenar muscles, but it also gets in there and does the adductor muscles, okay? So it crosses over in the hand. When it comes through Guyen's Canal, it crosses over and does the adductor muscles. So all the motions of the thumb, does everybody know what the motions of the thumb are? Okay, so if you don't, if you just hold your hand up, everybody hold your hand up. I can see you, it's not that dark out there. All right, so if you close your thumb, that's adduction. If you open your thumb, that's abduction. If you bend your thumb, that's flexion. If you open your thumb up, that's extension. And then if you touch your pinky, that's opposition. All right, so when you're talking about the motions of the thumb, those are the five important motions. That's what separates us from most animals, okay? We have an opposable thumb, opposition of the thumb. That's what allows us to do 90% of the things we do as human. Also, our brain power for like 50% of people, okay? It also innervates the intrinsic muscles of the hands. So those lumbricals number three and four, those interossei muscles, kind of allows us to do that opening and closing of our fingers, okay? So ulnar nerve is very important. Pay attention to the ulnar nerve. These are the ones where, um, you know, they say, I wake up in the morning and my, my pinky's completely numb. We'll talk about ulnar nerve entrapments later. Median nerve, mostly C6 through C8, sometimes T1, sometimes C5. The median nerve catches everything. It comes off the medial and lateral cords, and because of that, it catches a lot of innervation from different cervical nerve roots. Again, that sensory innervation in those median nerves you see here in yellow, mostly in the palmar side or the volar side of the hand, although it does wrap around the fingertips of the thumb and the first three, uh, the first, yeah, three and a half digits. So pay attention there. If they're saying the tip of my middle finger is numb or you know, the palm of my hand is numb, that's kind of more in the median nerve. Uh, the thenar muscles here are really important, especially that recurrent branch. You'll see the recurrent branch gets damaged a lot, or I say a lot. Hand surgeons really pay attention to the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve because it can get clipped. It's called the million dollar nerve. So if somebody has a carpal tunnel release and they clip that branch, they're gonna get a million dollars because they're supposed to look for it, okay? The median nerve is really what gives us that opposition, that flexion, and even the abduction. So it, the median nerve is really the big mover of the thumb. Just remember that adduction of the thumb comes from the ulnar nerve, okay? And then all those flexors, right? So pronator teres allows you to pronate, and then palmaris longus, uh, flexor carpa radialis, all those flexors that allows you to flex the wrist, pronate the wrist, and then move the thumb. That's the median nerve. Um, AIN, or anterior interosseous nerve, is a, a large motor branch of the median nerve. It's a really important nerve. Um, it comes with a lot of syndromes. What you really need to know is that those flexors and that pronator quadratus are there. It can get entrapped. Um, the sensory part of it is really a deep sensory. You can't really test it on the skin. It actually innervates the capsule of the wrist. Um, but it's an important nerve to think about, especially in that flexion and um, pronation. If you have an AIN syndrome or an entrapment, you have trouble with those. Radial nerve, this is the extensor nerve. If you think of anything else, the radial nerve does extension. It does extension of the elbow, it does extension of the wrist, it does extension of the fingers. You should think extension, extension, extension. So if you see radial nerve on the test, or they say they have a lack of extension, think the radial nerve, okay? Um, all these are extensors here. 
and then the sensory is probably the smaller on the, on the uh, Palmer or Voller side, but then on the extensor surface, because it's an extensor nerve, it does a lot of the dorsal side of the hand, okay? Uh, posterior interosseous nerve is a large branch, a very, very important branch off the radial nerve. Uh, posterior interosseous nerve syndrome we'll talk about later also is uh, pretty common. I think it's another one of those things that sees you more than you see it. Uh, but it can affect a lot of things. Uh, that PIN is the supinator, so it allows you to do this. And all the extensors. So really, most of the extensors are coming out of that PIN, especially in the thumb extension and wrist extension and supination. So it allows you to kind of do this, all right? Um, notice that everything I'm talking about kind of groups together. Right, so when you're losing big groups of extensor muscles, think big radial nerve lesion. If you're losing small bits of extension, like I can't, I can't extend my wrist, but I can't extend my fingers, think specific entrapments down distally. So speaking about entrapments, nerve entrapments are actually pretty common. Um, the human body is designed in a really, really cool way, right? I mean, if you think about it, what are the odds that this, this, I mean, I know I'm quite the specimen, but this came together the way it did, right? So we have nerves that run through tunnels and we have pulleys that allow us to bend our fingers without the, the tendons flexing and bowing out. And we have all of these really cool intricate things that happen in the body, but we have to be able to bend our elbow. We have to be able to put our hand above our, our head to do the things we need to do. So when we, when we come across weird things like this, like an elbow that can bend way past 90 degrees, the possibility of entrapments happens. And when nerves get entrapped, they start to get irritated because that endomecium and myomecium and all, or endomecium and myelin sheath, sorry, that surround the nerves that allow conductivity to happen faster, when they get compressed, they, get, they lose blood supply. And when they lose blood supply, they start to atrophy. And when they atrophy, they can completely go away. And so if you have somebody that's coming and telling you, I have numbness here, or I have tingling here, and you get to that point where you can address it at the early stages of compression and stop it from happening, you can stop that progression through and, and hopefully prevent more permanent damage, all right? I get a lot of patients that come to me and said, I've had this pain or numbness in my hand and they have carpal tunnel syndrome. And you know, why are you just coming to me now? I went to my doctor five years ago and he said, it's just carpal tunnel syndrome. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, now there's not because it's permanent. Okay, but if you catch these things early and you're, you're paying attention to them and you're focused in and you're thinking, man, maybe this is really a focal entrapment of a nerve. I need to have this looked at a little bit more closely to see if we can remedy that. You can stop this progression from just normal nerve to little neuropraxia all the way down to a complete destruction of the nerve. So if somebody's telling you they have sensory symptoms, numbness, tingling, but they don't have weakness, especially in a mixed nerve like the musculocutaneous nerve, so I'm getting kind of tingling over my arm, but they still have all of that strength in the flexion of the elbow. You're early on here. You're still in just the sensory phase. As you get into that motor phase and they get weakness, you need to be really pushing to get that person looked at a little closer. So the median nerve gets entrapped everywhere. It's by far the most common one. Um, always in the carpal tunnel, carpal tunnel, carpal tunnel. I read somewhere like 12 million people in the United States get diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome a year? It seems like a lot. I feel like that's probably a high number. Uh, but it is very common. And, and you can see here that there's different places where it can get entrapped. The most common, obviously, carpal tunnel. There's this thing called pronator syndrome. That median nerve 
has to run near the pronator teres muscle. Sometimes it goes over, sometimes it goes under, sometimes it goes straight through, but that is a place for compression there. And then this arcade of struthers, um, which is proximal to the elbow, it's up at the distal humerus, that arcade of struthers happens. You'll see this every so often. There's this arch of a fascia here um, where that flexor digitorum superficialis kind of starts to um, fan out and it can get entrapped there. But we'll talk about the more common ones. So carpal tunnel syndrome, this is the one where you have the secretary, sits at a computer all day, hand goes numb, gets pain in the thenar eminence, um, usually radiates proximally late in disease. I have had patients come to me complaining of shoulder pain. Their shoulder was completely normal. You start to examine them more distally and you find out they have a positive tenels, which is that tapping, right? Or a positive phalens, which is that reverse prayer kind of thing. Um, and when they have that positivity, their shoulder starts to hurt. So never forget that nerves run both directions, right? Nerves run from proximal to distal because they have to innervate things. But they also run from distal to proximal because they have to receive information. And that pain sensation can run proximally. So you can have a distal lesion that's causing that referred pain proximally. That's, that's a referred pain pattern, okay? You have to be careful. Again, this may become uh, permanent. This is that transverse carpal ligament. It's a very tense, very dense fibrous ligament that creates the carpal tunnel and that median nerve sits right underneath it. And so if that median nerve swells up or if it gets entrapped or gets pinched, uh, you get this carpal tunnel syndrome. Usually we treat it conservatively because we can get that thing to stop swelling, night splints, things like that. But when tr conservative treatment fails, we usually go to surgery. We usually do a carpal tunnel release, okay? Uh, full disclosure, I'm not a surgeon. I'm a primary care doctor, I have family medicine training, and I did a sports medicine fellowship, so I don't do surgery. Uh, pronator Terry syndrome, I know this is a busy slide, I apologize for it, it's kind of the best picture I could find, but if you look here, this pronator teres muscle comes right here, and if you look at this nerve right here that's coming through it and right over the top of it, that's the median nerve. So you can see how it's a possibility to get entrapped right there. This is one of those that I think has probably seen you way more than you've seen it. This is one of those like vague lateral elbow pain. It kind of it kind of hurts out here when they do stuff. You see this a lot in your young kind of jacked guys where they lift a lot of weights and their forearms are massive. And that hypertrophy of the muscle can actually make the compression worse. Um, so if you've ruled out you know, lateral epicondylitis and you've ruled out all those other really common things in elbows, think about that, that nerve, that pronator teres syndrome, that median nerve kind of getting impressed, compressed, and it can really radiate down into that thenar eminence. They can get this kind of vague pain that like, you know, sometimes it's my elbow, sometimes it's in my hand. Like I feel a little clumsy sometimes, like my thumb isn't working the way it's supposed to. Really think about that median nerve and pronator teres syndrome. Maybe. There we go. Okay, so I'm gonna apologize for putting this picture on here because I found out last night, <laughs> bad. Don't do that. I didn't know what it meant until last night. I'm not gonna say what it means. It means okay to me. AIN syndrome, pretty rare, but it can happen, okay? Remember, a the AIN is a distinctly motor nerve. It doesn't have any sensory component to it. So really the way you test this is can you put fingertip to fingertip? So index finger to thumb, fingertip to fingertip, and make that circle. What you do with these three fingers, I don't care. If you can do this, your AIN is intact, okay? Now, you may have varying degrees of strength. 
um, and that may be a muscle problem, so you have to pay attention to that. But if they can do this movement, your AIN is intact, okay? The ulnar nerve, this one we see a ton, a ton, a ton. That cubital tunnel, this lovely little thing, one of those wonders of engineering that I'm not sure how it works as well as it does most of the time. Um, this ulnar nerve runs right under that medial epicondyle, right through that cubital tunnel. And usually what we'll see is when people get really hyperflexed in their elbow, one of two things happens. It either puts that nerve on a stretch or that nerve subluxes out of the cubital tunnel and they'll feel a pop or a snap and then they'll get symptoms, okay? Um, again, tenels, that tapping over it, mine is super positive all the time, so I'm not gonna do it for real. But tapping over that nerve will recreate those symptoms. Um, this is one of those things we see a lot in overhead athletes, baseball players, volleyball players, super tall volleyball players, your outside hitters, those girls that come up there and they really are cranking on that ball. They get way out here. It's exactly the same motion as a baseball picture, except they don't get the wind up. All they get is a step and a swing, right? And so you'll see it a lot in them. I try to treat these with night splints. I try to keep them out like so. Try to keep them out to where they're not getting them, because everybody falls asleep and they want to do this, right? Head behind their head, and they're like, I'm sleeping. But then they wake up and it pain, and then they get weak. Um, but it's super common, okay? Super, super common, that cubital tunnel syndrome which is the next slide, because I knew that. All right. Um, in severe, severe cases, they will get weakness of those intrinsic muscles of the hand. They may even get some hypothenar and thenar um, atrophy. This is super late in the game. If you're that far down the road in this game, you're behind. You're way, way behind. We try to address these when they start to get the sensory components, okay? I don't know what just happened. Okay, Guyan's canal compression. Um, a little less common, but can be super common in certain activities. Uh, I see this more in rock climbing than I see in much of anything else. Uh, people who have to use their hand, um, it kind of goes along with another syndrome I'll talk about. But it's ulnar nerve, it's a nerve compression, but it's a distal ulnar nerve compression. So Guyen's canal is at the same level as the transverse carpal ligament. It doesn't run through the carpal tunnel, it runs through its own tunnel. Uh, but it runs down here, and you'll see this... Um, You'll get that similar paresthesia in the fingers because it's still distal to the compression, but you usually have the, the sparing of those flexors of the finger. You usually are able to flex the finger because that flexor digitorum is innervated far more proximally. So you can flex the fingers, but you still get that numbness and paresthesias. You can still get that atrophy though, so pay attention to it. If they have those paresthesias, you need to find out where along that ulnar nerve you're getting compressed, okay? Again, Guyen's Canal. Hypothenar hammer syndrome, it's always on sports medicine tests. It's probably not on your test, so you probably don't have to pay attention to it. But a lot of times rock climbers will bang their spikes with their hands instead of using a hammer. And when they do that, they actually damage that ulnar artery that runs along with the ulnar nerve, and they'll get chronic clots in there. That's one of the things you have to kind of tease out. So again, history. If they hit something a lot and they're getting paresthesias, it may not be a nerve injury. It may be an arterial injury that needs to be evaluated a little bit more. Frommet sign is the big one that we look for for ulnar nerve damage. This one gets confused a lot. I have athletic trainers confused. I have sports medicine fellows confused. Um, the only people I know that know it cold are the hand surgeons. Um, so remember, the ulnar nerve is the adductor, right? So you adduct the thumb. So if you take a piece of paper and you hold it and you have them adduct the thumb, 
So this is adduction, and you try to pull it away, and if that thumb flexes to hold that paper, if it flexes, so now we're doing, instead of the ulnar nerve, we're using our median nerve to hold that paper, that's a positive from it sign. That's a weakness of the ulnar nerve. If they can hold that thumb flat and not let you pull that paper out, that's a negative test. That means the ulnar nerve is intact to the adductors of the thumb. That one gets confused a lot, so kind of put that one in your, in your bank there. It, it's confusing, you're like on this side, on this slide, you're like, is this one being tested or is this one being tested? Um, either one, if this is a test, it's a negative test, right? Because they're not flexing the thumb. If this side's getting tested, this is a positive test because they're having to flex. Instead of having adduction, they're flexing the thumb, okay? Radial nerve entrapments happen mm, not super, super commonly. Uh, we will talk about the PIN a little bit. Um, the one that happens that I think is fun to talk about is the Saturday Night Palsy. You should not be seeing this much in your middle school and high school athletes. You might accidentally see this a fair amount in your college athletes. This is the one where they get so drunk they fall asleep and either they have their hand up over their head like this or they fall asleep over the back of the chair and it compresses that radial nerve right here at that spiral groove of the radius or of the humerus, sorry. So you see how that radial nerve runs right in that spiral groove and it's like, it's also you can get it when they use crutches wrong, like if they're really leaning on their crutches, on their humerus, instead of using their hands, they're really hanging up in their axilla. Um, you can see this quite a bit. And what you see here is wrist drop. They can't extend the wrist. Remember, radial nerve is extensors, right? So they get wrist drop, so they can't extend. And they might be able to fire it, but they really can't do it very well. I will tell you as athletic trainers, this is where you really have to pay attention to those crutches. Make sure they're using crutches. Because you can get a pretty good palsy and you can get a pretty permanent palsy if they don't pay attention and fix it. PIN syndrome, again, that compression, um, that vague pain, again, over the lateral epicondyle. Those extensors become weak. Now again, you get that wrist drop. So other nerve palsies, this is a picture of a sunrise in the deserts of Mexico. There's some deer over there. I fed them, they were happy. <laughs> Those made it, those were the lucky ones. All right, so weakness of the straightest anterior with this long thoracic nerve, again, C5 through C7, a pretty big expanse here. If you notice here, this long thoracic nerve, it's called the long thoracic nerve because it is a very long nerve that runs over the thorax and it innervates each muscle belly individually of the serratus anterior. So if you have a really pronounced weakening of the scapula, like in this picture, or like some of these kids, you have them do a wall push up and that thing just flies right off their back, you know, the lesion's probably up here proximally, okay? If you have like a more minor one, you can get lesions down distally that still innervate these upper serratus muscles, but don't innervate the lower serratus muscles. So um, you can try to tease that out a little bit. But in general, if they have a long thoracic nerve palsy, it's going to be pretty pronounced winging. Okay? Most of the time it's idiopathic. It can be traumatic. Um, receiver that goes up to catch a ball takes a shot right to the thorax, to the chest. You can stun that nerve just like you do a dead leg or anything else. You can stun that thing and see a pretty pronounced uh, temporary palsy. Okay? Axillary nerve, we see this here um, with compression after surgery. I've seen damage after surgery. <clears throat> it can get trapped in this quadrangular space. Don't panic. Don't have to remember what the quadrangular space is, although you probably should know it. Again, uh, compression here. A lot of times you'll get vague kind of posterior shoulder pain because the axillary nerve does innervate part of the posterior capsule of the shoulder. But again, you can get that weakness in abduction. 
Um, suprascapular nerve, this is the one where I think it helps us to tease out a little bit because it innervates the, um, both nerves here, the supraspinatus, supraspinatus, and infraspinatus. If you get weakness of both supraspinatus and infraspinatus, the lesion has to be before the suprascapular notch. All right, so there's a notch in the scapula where it runs through along with the artery, and it can get it trapped here. So if both the supraspinatus and infraspinatus are weak, the, it has to be proximal to that, and it's usually in the suprascapular notch. If only the infraspinatus is weak, it usually is in the spinoglenoid notch, which is right here. And this is usually in people that have big labral tears that develop labral cysts that push out posteriorly, and that cyst will compress the nerve right there, and they have weakness in this external rotation. They can abduct, but they can't externally rotate. You usually get some weird pain radiation here. Um, that's usually a referred pain. So plexopathies, this is in Utah. It's very pretty. You guys know burners and stingers. I'm not gonna belabor burners and stingers. I will tell you this, if you ever have somebody that has bilateral burners or stingers at the same time, or if they have more than three on the same side that are pretty similar in origin, they need to get worked up. They need x-rays, they need an MRI. There's usually something congenital happening there, okay? Don't um, ignore the backpack palsy. These kids that walk around with 50 pound backpacks can really put a lot of traction on that upper trunk of the brachial plexus. Neuralgic amyotrophy, this is Parsonage-Turner syndrome. Um, this is a very late picture. You notice here the atrophy of the deltoid, of the supraspinatus, of the infraspinatus, and the winging of the scapula all at one time. This is an um, inflammatory neuritis of the entire brachial plexus. All right? This is hard to figure out sometimes until very late. Um, but if somebody comes to you and is like, my entire arm hurts, my entire shoulder hurts, this something is wrong, um, be in the back of your mind, think this could be Parsonage-Turner. They usually have to get EMGs, but we can't get them for six weeks, otherwise they're normal. Usually self-limited, but I have one patient that still hasn't resolved after five years. Neoplastic, never forget cancer can do anything. Sometimes you can get these upper lung cancers that press on the inferior plexus. If you have somebody that comes to you and they're having shoulder pain or radiation down their arm, and one pupil is bigger than the other, and they have ptosis or the eyelid is drooping, they need to go to a doctor that day, probably the ER. Uh, because if they're having eye symptoms with shoulder pain, you have to worry about this pancos tumor. Not common, but just something to think about. Nerve root avulsions, these are kind of everybody's nightmare. If you avulse the nerve root off the cord itself, that is unfixable, okay? And the problem is, is a lot of times it takes a little while for you to figure it out because when you acutely avulse the nerve root, that nerve still thinks it's alive. And it may take up to two to three weeks to get the full picture of what's going on. So if you have somebody with a neck injury that you're like, I don't know what's going on, don't be afraid to get an MRI. They're too cheap these days. You can stretch the nerve. You can actually snap the nerve distal. If you do this, this is way better than this. This is potentially fixable, okay? But just pay attention. Just know that that can be in your differential. Thoracic outlet, I am not going to talk much about thoracic outlet syndrome. I could talk for six hours on thoracic outlet syndrome. All your eyes would cross because you would be just as confused as I would be giving you a talk about thoracic outlet syndrome. Just know that when you get up into this position here, if something causes neuro neurologic symptoms, you should be thinking about thoracic outlet. I literally went to a two-hour lecture on this thing, and I came out like, oh, crap. Things that can kind of mimic neurologic problems that are not true entrapments or nerve problems, these are the things that you're like, something's just not making sense. There's more out there than what's meeting the eye. Lupus, 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 lupus. Um, it's way more common than we think it is. Lyme disease in Texas is becoming a really big thing. We're starting to find more and more. 
Never underestimate the diabetic. HIV and AIDS is less common now because of PrEP, uh, but pay attention to that. Syphilis can mimic anything, literally anything. So if somebody comes to you and say, I have numbness and a rash on the palms of their hands, they need to go see somebody. There are some odd vitamin and mineral deficiencies like B12 and folate deficiencies, and then the myopathies. The other one that I don't have on this that I had on my other version is multiple sclerosis. So if something is coming out and you're just like, this doesn't make any sense. The myotomes don't make sense. The dermatomes don't make any sense. It's, nothing lines up. Think brain. That's coming out of the brain. And so you have to pay attention to that. And then the congenital issues. This is a picture of a syrinx. A syrinx is basically a defect in the spinal cord. I'm going to get over here so you guys can see it. But the spinal cord on this image should be dark all the way through like it is up here. So as you come down, you see right here it gets bright white and it has dark on either side. This is spinal fluid inside the cord. That's a syrinx. And those can cause really, really weird symptoms. So if, you, if something's not adding up, don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, things that are bad, things that I don't like to see, clonus. So clonus is that thing when you take the hand and you extend it against force and it fights back against you. So you pop it and it pops back against you. A one or two beats of clonus, if it's bilateral and symmetrical, is fine, okay? If you have sustained four or five beat clonus and it's unilateral, they need to go see somebody and get imaging. That's, that's a problem, okay? Hoffman's sign is that really weird one that nobody really knows how to do, but you have them relax their hand and you kind of snap on the fingernail of the middle finger and you kind of force it into flexion and what'll happen is their thumb will flex towards their index finger. So that's a sign of hyperreflexia. Hyperreflexia usually means some sort of central lesion or compression. And then any asymmetrical hyperreflexia. So if you do a biceps on this side and it jerks and you do one on here and it's kind of meh, I usually have them looked at with imaging. Okay, any questions? Hey, all, thanks for joining us at the Trinity University Sports Medicine Workshop. Stay tuned for part two, spinal deformities from Dr. Sean Scott. At the end of this, make sure you go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash upper extremity neuro evals or sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash spinal deformities to complete the, the CEU course, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash upper extremity neuro eval or sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash spinal deformities to complete the CEU course for these two combined podcasts to give you CEUs from Trinity University Sports Medicine hosted by San Antonio Methodist. So the topic's a little bit vague here, but we're going to get into a lot more case history. I kind of want to bounce a lot of what we learned with Dr. Magoni's talk, and we're going to apply it to kind of real-life situations here. When we talk a lot about spinal issues, a lot of people kind of give me this look. And I see that a lot when I work sporting events, when I do talks. And the biggest thing is it doesn't have to be that dark forest. It does not have to be so crazy. And really, my objective is I just want to shed a little light. I don't want to make that forest so dark. I want to make you guys walk away with a little more comfort in being able to assess things that are gonna come in your way. Something that I practice, and people look at me a little bit odd, is I practice in fear. I'm gonna pause when I say that. Fear of not so much trying to be right, I don't wanna be wrong. And there's a difference. I try so hard to figure out, is it safe for my athlete to either be treated or sent off? That fear 
is what drives me. It keeps me honest. It keeps me from being too comfortable. It keeps me from not listening to my patient. I've been doing this over 20 years, and I, I still get just a little edgy when I work because I'm a little fearful of not catching that one little sentence, that one little sign. These are three things that I follow to this day. I talk about it in the clinic all the time when I work rodeos. Stay disciplined in your exam, how you talk to your athletes, your patients. Trust your processes. You must have a process for how you do things. Everybody has a process. And if you don't have processes, my exam is the same for every body part and I incorporate different things. The biggest thing is never, ever, ever disregard your gut. If your processes tell you something is wrong, but your gut says different, listen to your gut. And I'm going to talk about some case studies that get me a little bit fired up. So as we kind of go forward, the biggest thing I want you guys to get is know your nerves. One reason that I work rodeo is it's probably one of the hardest sports to do. And I'm challenged all the time. There is not a rodeo, an athlete, that I'm constantly having to be challenged. When I go back to my clinic, life's pretty easy compared to working a rodeo. And everyone asks me, why do you work rodeo? And I, for the challenge, absolutely. It's something I grew up, it's something I'm a part of, and it's absolutely something I love doing, but you must know your nerves. And Dr. Magoni did a great job kind of breaking everything down, and I'm not going to step and, and repeat a lot of things. I'm just going to pull some fine points. All right, we're going to jump right into case studies. So a lot of times I do two case studies at once, and we'll just kind of blow through here. So I got a 16-year-old football player comes in, bilateral hand pain. Probably happens all the time. During the game, he was pushed from behind, kind of landed face down, hands out in front. So when I questioned him a little further, all he really said to me was, my middle fingers are tingling. That's it. That's all he really said. I couldn't, 16-year-old kid, couldn't get much out of him. I kept questioning, What's, what else hurts? I don't know, just my middle fingers are tingling. I said, okay. So let's review the arm nerves without going into a lot of detail. If you know your C8 nerve and you know your ulnar nerve, all the others fall into place. So if everybody sticks their hands up, do this for me. C8, C7, C6. Remember that. So middle finger is C7. So immediately I'm thinking C7. Why would I not think median nerve? I could. So it's a differential diagnosis. Exactly, bilateral. Whoever said that, you get an A. So bilateral symptoms, you must go to a source, which would be spine. And let me tell you guys something. For every shoulder, you should be doing a cervical exam. For every knee, you should be doing a hip. For every hip, you should be doing a low back and pelvis. That is my process every single time. So if you look at that C8, so remember, the ulnar nerve splits the fourth digit. If you have someone that says tingling numbness on this portion of the hand, 
you know that C8. That's how you know. C8, C7, C6, you know your ulnar nerve, your median nerve goes to the other three, your radial nerve is in the back. Keep it really straightforward and know that your radial nerve doesn't go to the tips for the most part. Case two, saddle bronc rider. Pretty straightforward case. Lands on his head, walks out of the arena. He does get examined. Said he's fine. Drives from Colorado to Texas. Dr. Magoni will remember this one. Comes in to see me. Says, man, no fingers are tingling. That's all he said. So what are we thinking here? We got to start running through our nerves again. Is it an ulnar nerve? We kind of went through that. Radial nerve? Is it median nerve? Or is it a spinal nerve? And I think we covered that on the last case. You really need to be looking at a spinal nerve. And which one? Obviously, the middle one is your C7. One of the biggest things people tend to do, and I see this at so many events, is they jump right to their orthopedic testing. You have bilateral arm hand symptoms, trauma. Why would I compress the neck? So I want to ask you guys, what's appropriate on this? Range of motion? If they're walking in my clinic, yeah, we can do range of motion. Orthopedic? I probably wouldn't do anything. Neurologic, you bet, we can test strength. Can you palpate as long as you're not aggressive? Absolutely. So on both these cases, flexion, extension, reproduce, tingling in the fingers. Exam's done. Exam is done right there. I did palpate around. Both patients said, that feels weird. I don't have to do any more. Both these cases ended up going to the hospital. So on the first one, flexion teardrop fracture C5. You guys can read the rest. Immediately went in for an MRI. Now here's the interesting thing. This is straight from the radiology report. The radiologist put on here, please correlate for radicular numbness or finger tingling. And I thought that was pretty interesting that he put on there. And after looking back at that, I'm not sure I've ever seen that in 20 years of practice, but that was pretty good. So you get those little weird things, they can be really bad. Both of them ended up having surgery the next day. Case number three. The reason I brought this up, and we'll kind of walk you, this is a mid 20 year old, came into the clinic, super fit CrossFit guy, He's having a bunch of weird, I mean, he's got upper back, mid back, low back. Uh, he works a lot of physical demanding construction work. Uh, he had a little stomach. I just kind of copied the history. And Jason said it the best, you must get a really good history. So we just kind of copied this straight from our, our notes at the clinic. There's no, no arm, no leg, nothing weird. He's just got all this weird stuff. So I did all these tests. The one thing I noticed was, if I can make this work, a little bit of decrease. And Dr. Magoni talked about doing reflexes. It's hard in a traumatic situation, guy coming off the field. I get it. Clinical setting, it's a little different story. Range of motion, everything was good. I noticed that his hip extensors, uh, they were a little bit weak. I don't really understand how this super fit CrossFit guy is having some things. Those are my really only two abnormalities. 
So this is the plan in the clinic, and I just kind of put on there, you know, the symptoms are rather high for a young male. Uh, need to send them out for further imaging. So I put on here what I said, I ordered some x-rays on him. But when I went to the portal, I found some pretty crazy things. Back in 2004, when he was a freshman in high school, and keep in mind, this athlete, or this guy's probably about 6'4", so he was a pretty good athlete in high school. He had had similar symptoms. They sent him off. And you guys can read, there's, there's definitely some abnormalities going on near the cord, in the cord. There's some findings. This is the thoracic MRI finding. He's got some small nodes. Um, and then the MRI of the cervical spine. So he basically has this unusual, they don't even know what it is, some type of lesion somewhere in his spine. Now keep in mind, here's what he told the school medical staff was, oh, they said I'm fine. The reason I bring this story up is don't be afraid to ask your athlete, can you provide imaging? Can you bring me copies of reports? Because I guarantee you, this guy's not fine. <coughs> he wanted to play, so what did he tell you guys? I'm fine. So I sent him off for a boatload of MRIs because that's what he need. I don't have results yet. I'm very, very curious. I've already notified the neurosurgeon I deal with, Dr. Stokes in Austin, and we're kind of work this guy up. Case number four. So I'm kind of blowing through some of this stuff here. Pretty, pretty classic things you guys are going to see. Guy comes off the fields, holding his arm. What are we thinking? You can think of shoulder dislocation, subluxation, some type of stinger, some kind of neck trauma. Case five. And this happened a couple years ago. I was working a rodeo. Guy was by the gate, and the gate opened real hard. Have you ever been to a rodeo? Sometimes those gates blow open. Guy got caught, hit, fell back, landed on his shoulder. So both cases are presenting like shoulder exams. And so you're kind of thinking when they come in, what is my differential diagnosis? Kind of wh where is my brain going on this? So more information. Both cases didn't have any neck pain. Any reason to do a neck exam? Absolutely. If there's a shoulder, there's a neck. You must start incorporating your orthopedic testing into your exam. Don't be afraid to do it. If you do it enough, something I teach a lot of people is, if you know what normal is, you know what abnormal. And, don't, and I hear that all the time. Well, how do I know when it's abnormal? <laughs> you will know. That's all I can say is you will know when it's abnormal. Don't be afraid to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of exams on normal people because when it is abnormal, you will stop and go, uh-oh, we have a problem. Know the nerves. Both people stated that they were starting to get some sensation into their thumb. Going back to our here, C6. All right, how do we know it's not a peripheral nerve? We don't, but we have to think of worst case scenario. So, what are our options? We kind of, we already know that we have a concern of a C6 nerve. Could there be a peripheral? I'm not real worried about that right now. 
I dang sure need to know if there's a C6 nerve. But here's kind of a red flag. Both exams, the athletes kept doing this. Red flag right there. Your exam needs to stop. This is called the Cody sign. There's multiple, multiple variations of the Cody sign. Some are very simple. Sometimes your athlete will just do this. They're trying to decompress that nerve. Something is pressing on that nerve. If you don't know Bacote's sign, you will see it. I can almost guarantee it. So both cases, it's pretty interesting. They, they had a C7 transverse process fracture, and that portion of the bone was just basically laying on the C6 nerve, and both obviously went in for surgery. So those are kind of obscure things, but once again, you do not want to start compressing and pushing on the neck and doing aggressive maneuvers. Your exam can be just as detrimental as the mechanism of injury if we're not careful. So we must know our nerves. You must stay disciplined. And I can't emphasize that enough. You must stay disciplined. You must know your processes and you must trust your gut. And no matter what, if you're unsure, don't do anything. Too many of us want to help. I think most of the reason I got into the sports side is I wanted to be challenged. I didn't want to be like the rest of my colleagues. I know the reputation my profession has, and I wanted to be different. I wanted to take what I learned in school and apply it. And the reason I work so hard and try so hard, that's the fear factor, is I want to make a difference just like everybody else does, but I also don't want to be that guy that all of you kind of hear about. And that's why I'm standing here today, is trust your processes, stay disciplined, and know your, know your nerves. Gosh, I can't emphasize know your nerves. This case right here, the reason I threw it up is, you'll see here in a minute why this is so significant. And this one actually, if you see me pause a little bit, this one fires me up. And the reason I brought in here is, how many of us have been thrown under the bus? How many of us have felt like you have your athlete, you know what's wrong, you send them off, and man, you're thrown under the bus? And I'm sure there's probably a lot of yeses going on. And this is a real extreme case of it. I'm gonna let you guys kind of read this. The biggest thing I wanna point out is this lady came in, she's about mid 40s, chronic headaches. Um, the interesting thing about this is her arm symptoms started developing. She started developing some right hand tremors. She had been treated by, I lost count of how many doctors from family physicians, physical therapists, pain management, neurosurgeons, chiropractors. I mean, this poor lady had, the only reason she came in the clinic is one of her friends works in my office. And it's the only reason she came in because she didn't want to go anywhere else. She was done because everyone kept telling her there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. And I think we've all had those cases where you get those athletes, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. Maybe you think there is, and maybe you just dismiss them too. But don't be afraid to listen to your gut and stand up for things that you feel are right. I did all kinds of tests on her. Nothing was abnormal. I, I didn't even have room to put the rest of them. I just kept writing them up here. 
the only real abnormality is when I did reflexes, there was some increased reflexes in the upper extremity, but her strength was fine. So MRI, of course we're going to do an MRI. Nothing really abnormal. She's got three small disc problems. Shoot, my neck's about like that. But nothing that would create the symptoms that she's explaining. So if we're trying to think about our nerve pathways, we have kind of diffuse nerve issues, not following dermatomal or myotomal weakness. There is no weakness. We know that from our exam. You've got elevated reflexes, so you have to start saying, if something isn't following the patterns, it's either A, nothing's wrong, or something bad. There is no in-between on these cases. There really isn't. So this was my plan. I said, look, basically, this doesn't make sense here. Uh, I couldn't reproduce anything. She was pretty much intact neurologically, except for a little bit of reflexes. Could that be error on the examiner? Sure. So you have to also be objective to yourself, but you have to know if you do things over and over and over, what's normal and what's abnormal. So my recommendation basically on this lady was, let's get an EMG. We need to check your nerves. Something is not right here. I just, in my gut, even though my processes told me there's a couple things, her, her reflexes were abnormal, but other than that, nothing was really saying you have a problem. So if I did nothing else, abnormal reflexes, you have to rule out that there's not a pathology going on. I said, let's get an EMG. So we got an EMG and this number one pops up. Basically, there was an abnormality going on in the nerve membrane and it was shooting all these kind of unusual findings. So I got pretty fired up when I got this. I got on the phone, I started calling people and those of you that know me know that I get when I get fired up, I get a little, little hyper here. My concern was just because you have an abnormal test doesn't mean it's real. So I said, look, we need to repeat this. I have a neurologist in Austin. She's a musculoskeletal specialist. She deals with nerve disorders. She will do her own EMG, had the appointment set up. In the meantime, she's taking this medication from her cardiologist, and she tells me, she's a court reporter, every time I'm working, I just get really sleepy and I almost pass out. And no one thought that's abnormal. So I said, look, let's go back to the cardiologist. Let's get that problem. I can't have you drive in your kids. I can't have there be a problem. This is a longer story, but I really want it to kind of sink in here. She goes to the cardiologist. Cardiologist throws me under the bus, tells her I'm an idiot. Nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with the EMG. She needs a neck surgery. I said, oh, he said that, huh? I said, yep, go back to the neurosurgeon that ordered the MRI. Who has not called the patient and we're going on four weeks now? Who also has copies of the EMG has not contacted the patient. So she completely does not return any of our calls. Won't communicate with me or the staff. Goes to the neurosurgeon. He says, EMG's fine. It's probably just a weird issue. You need neck surgery. Does a two-level fusion. She's worse after surgery. Now she's starting to get an increased symptoms in her arms. 
she's starting her tremors are worse. Now they're bilateral. She's losing weight. What do, what do the surgeons do? They kick her to pain management. Pain management really doesn't know what to do with her. Her face starts dropping. She starts having some unusual issues. Fortunately, he said, time out. Redo the EMG. He freaked out. Center for genetic testing. Lady comes up with Pompe disease. If you're not familiar with this, this is, and Dr. Magoni will probably tell me, this is, for my profession, this is one of those state board, or national board questions you're never supposed to see. Well, guess what? It popped up in my clinic. So going back to, I stayed disciplined, I trusted my processes, but ultimately, I trusted my gut, even though my processes couldn't really support until I had the EMG findings. So here's the significant. She has two high school athletes and one in middle school. During this whole testing, her son, 16-year-old, flips his truck, breaks his tib-fib, and he's not healing. So I get a call from the athletic trainer at the high school. Hey, Sean, blah, blah, blah. We start talking about this. And I said, we have a problem here. It was great that he called me. And I thought that it, you don't always have to know what's wrong, but you have to know what's abnormal. He says, hey, what's going on with the mom? And I said, well, we got to be tricky with HIPAA laws, blah, blah, blah. But this was one of those that we needed to talk. So he sent his athlete for further testing. Meanwhile, the pain management doctor is running around. She comes up with this Pompeii disease. And I just give a little more information of what it is. Unfortunately, it's an inherited genetic disorder that now we're worried that her kids have. Is that why her son is not healing? Is that why? So once again, knowing your athletes, knowing when something is abnormal and not being afraid to say, hey, this is not right. You're not healing good. Getting more of a history, you find out something like this is going on with their mom. Everything's got to change here. And that's the one thing that I think, I, I'm not saying I did it the best early in my years of practice because I think you're trained to refer and then you're done. Now, I don't care. If I know I'm right, I'm going to follow this through because I really don't care anymore. And I know that sounds very harsh, but it's the truth. Because I had a patient die on me. And it was my second year in practice. And I'll never, ever forget that case. I knew there was something wrong. I sent her to five specialists. All five of them told her, my patient, she was crazy. Lady dies. Her husband comes to me exasperated, just about to chew me out in clinic. Do you know what happened to my wife? I said, no, she's not alive. I didn't know what to say. Because I trusted the system, and the system failed me. So since then, I've never, if I know something's not right, I push it through. If my patient doesn't want to call me, that's fine. But in my heart, I know I've done every everything possible 
to get them the best care. So as you can tell, that one gets me a little emotional because I take this very, very, very serious. Those that know me personally, I like to have a lot of fun. Everyone knows that. But when it comes to work, when it comes to my job, taking care of people, it's not just taking care of people. We are the front lines of trauma. All of us, they see us first. And we have to remember, sometimes we're the only ones that really can make a difference. Whether we triage them correctly or not, that's on us. Whether they walk into your training room or my clinic, or if I'm at a high school or rodeo, that's on us. And we have to be able to say what's normal and what's abnormal. So with that last case, fortunately, all three kids, are they have recessively tested negative for Pompeii disease. The problem is, is we know what can happen if that's transferred down the road. The mom, it's a bad situation. Single mom, no father, no mother, father, no grandparents. I honestly don't know what's going to happen to these kids. It literally breaks my heart to know their mom might not be here very shortly, you know, but that's the reality of things that are popping in any of our clinics or your room. So as we switch gears here, my 17 year old baseball guy is six foot eight. He's a tall kid. Came to me about a month before I went to Vegas. Uh, he's really wanting to play college ball. I think we hear that all the time. Oh, my kid's going to play college. So I kind of wrote through here the history. Patients had some x-rays. Another chiropractor, which I'm the most critical of my own profession. And when I see stuff like that, that means nothing to me. I want real x-rays. I want a radiologist to read them. So I do my exam. Refluxes are good, really don't produce anything orthopedically. His elbow flexor extensors are weak. They're not grossly weak. There's just an abnormality in his dominant throwing hand. So immediately, I'm thinking, all right, C6, C7 pathology. I've got weakness. I have to refer this guy for an MRI. I don't really have a choice. So I put on here, do 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 I send them off and I order an MRI. Now here's the interesting thing. I had a great video, but I was afraid that the video would not come up very good because I'm going to demonstrate and you two in the back, please do not laugh at me because <laughs> I know that's going to come. So remember this kid is six foot eight and what was happening with his neck is we found a C3, C4, pretty severe foraminal stenosis on the left side. Did I expect to find that? I'd be lying if I told you I was. I would be really good if I could, could have called that one. The point is, is getting your results. So when your athlete comes to you and says, they said nothing is wrong with my neck, there's some truth to that, except there's not truth. And what was happening is that he's so tall that he was only hiking his leg up partway. And when he would take a step and go through his motion, and as he would follow through, his head would whip down every single throw. That repetitive motion 
is the best thing that I can come up with that started causing that narrowing. And it was crazy. So I called the dad. Dad sent him back to his pitching coach, changed everything up. Now we're following through. But this is your typical athlete. Does he need surgery? Of course he doesn't. What did I do? I sent him to the PT in the clinic. We worked on his tricep strength. We changed his mechanics. The guy's doing great. Literally, I saw him three or four times. But it was a real weird case. So my process led me to order the MRI, but my MRI really didn't show me anything. But you have to get your studies, and you have to know that you're safe, because what if there was a C6, C7 pathology? Yeah, then we have a problem. But this was a case where they were in the right place, and we took care of them. A year earlier, this is my same athlete. He's only 6'5". He comes to me with left pelvis, hamstring, knee pain. Baseball practice. Doesn't really say there's specific trauma. He just said in the tournament, you know, he took off the first base. You know, kind of felt kind of a pain in the hamstring. Mom, dad think, you know, it's a hamstring injury. So he's being treated for a hamstring injury elsewhere. The only reason he's coming to my office is he's not getting better. On the bottom here, what's interesting is his low back symptoms are really just worse when he's really fatigued. And that's about it, really. Um, he doesn't really have any numbness, tingling, anything going on. So when I did my exam, you know, there really wasn't wasn't a whole lot that that showed up but I did reproduce that hamstring pain we all know that if you have a hamstring tear you're going to reproduce it with your nerve root testings so how do you know it's not a disc injury how do you know you don't have just a simple hamstring how do I know I don't have a wimpy kid I know you guys don't have any of those exactly what if it's none of the above what if there's just nothing wrong with him. He's not wimpy. It's just nothing wrong. That's a possibility. So here was my plan. I decided to order a pelvic MRI. I did not feel, my process did not indicate there was a lumbar disc injury. Even though my orthopedic test reproduced some things, neurologically he was intact. And also he really didn't have a lot of low back pain. He had a fatigue pain. He's six foot five and he's hunched down all the time. Oh, my back would probably hurt too. Keep in mind that the whole time I was treating him was about six weeks. He grew an inch and a half in that six weeks. This was crazy. So I talked it over with mom and dad. I said, look, we need to do a pelvic MRI ASAP. We need to see what's going on. Basically, he had a stress reaction, left issue. So if I don't order that pelvic MRI and we continue doing treatments and we continue letting our athlete play, we're going to have a big problem. We're going to have a stress fracture. We're going to end up in surgery. What was complicating this is over the three months, like I said, he grew an inch and a half, almost an inch and three quarters. I could not get that bone to heal because he was growing so fast. This was one of the crazier cases I've had. And when I last saw him a few months ago, he's six foot eight now. So I think it's important to not just assume it's a hamstring injury. And let me tell you guys something. If you have 
repetitive hamstring, repetitive groin, or repetitive quads, you better start thinking pelvic or spine issues. If you have your athletes that continue getting repetitive strains, if for better word, or is it a sprain strain, Sean? Yeah, I know. It's a old joke between us. If they continue getting these repetitive injuries, you can't keep treating the same thing. You must start thinking outside the box. I can almost guarantee you, I get an athlete, my rodeo guys, he keeps pulling his groin. I'm not worried about his groin. I may not even be worried about his pelvis. I'm more worried about what's happening in the low back because I'm trying to figure out what is going on with this guy. And this is a great example of a case where it looked like a duck, sounded like a duck, it dang sure wasn't a duck. I had a 16-year-old uh, drill team person come to me. The problem was she pulled her groin. Okay, pretty straightforward. Pulled her groin. Why are you in my office? Pulled your groin. Well, it's not the first time she pulled it. I said, okay. So her, she's able to do the splits, but she can only do it on one side, not the other, because it started causing trouble to the groin. Well, that would make sense. You do the splits. I can't even think of doing the splits. So I had her demonstrate you know, the splits, what she could and couldn't do. And although there was groin pain, there wasn't necessarily what I thought was normal groin pain. So when I did my exam, everything came back pretty good. Yes, she had some step test, delay test was, you know, she had some SI, which we can find SI on a lot of people. But I want to go to the muscle strength. Her hip abduction was a little bit decreased. Her hip extension and her bilateral hip extension, I think we left off a word there, was four out of five. The reason this is significant is I'm not really dealing too much with the groin. I'm already thinking shifting gears here. There has to be something more going on. Because I have to say, what's really going on with her? It's not her groin. There's no reason for her to be in my clinic if it's a groin pain. So if we go back to our myotome testing, we know that our hip abduction is around the L4, L5, S1. We know hip extension is L4, L5. We know bilateral knee extensions, L2, 3. So even if you don't know specifically, I have a lot of lumbar stuff going on here. We, need, we at least need to say, I have a lumbar pathology going on. She's going to have, and if you have a groin, you're going to have an SI dysfunction. If you have a hamstring, you're going to have an SI. If you get a quad, you're going to have an SI. But I hear about SI, SI, SI all the time. And sometimes it's more than just the SI. Remember, the SI is reactionary. It's rarely the cause. I'll repeat that. It's reactionary to the trauma. Your SI, your big joints, your big muscles in the pelvis lock down to protect the mechanic of what you're doing. That's why we limp. I sent her for lumbar x-rays. This was pretty straightforward. Yeah, did she have an SI? Could I have treated the groin? Could I have done a lot of stuff? Absolutely. But if I don't figure out what keeps causing these groin injuries, she's going to have another injury or potentially a worse problem. She 
She had a grade two unstable spondee. So I order flexion extensions on everything I do, neck or low back. I highly recommend you guys to try to understand the reasoning for flexion extension x-rays. You miss a lot on just a true lateral film. There is so much. Yes, we would have caught this grade two spondee. But the bigger issue is this thing is moving on flexion. You see where it goes. You see where it goes on extension. You know, I've got 45 millimeters of movement going on every time she's walking, standing, doing any kind of athletics. Your flexion extension x-rays, especially in your cervical spine, are so important. I have spent years trying to find doctors to work with. The people that I work with, I have sought out. I don't care if they're in my town. I don't even care if they're in my state. I try to find the best doctors that can give me the best answers for my athletes. Because when I have a situation like this, and I told my neurosurgeon 18 years ago when he gave me a cell phone number, that was going to be the worst mistake he ever did because I probably call him every two or three days. And I immediately called him on this. He wasn't too excited. We treated her. She actually came to intern in the clinic. Uh, she's at A&M right now. And it was a good case with a good result. Does she have a back problem? Absolutely. She's very aware. But we've given her the things. We worked with her school. We changed her, her program, her stretching, weight program. And, and I get a lot of calls from a lot of the people in my area for a lot of things like this. I just got a call uh, this morning from one of the high school's uh, swimmer. PARS defect issue. They wanted to know, you know, my opinion. And the reason is I'm very friendly to the ATC world. You guys are probably one of my favorite groups to work with. I really respect a lot of your training, what you guys go through. I also know what it's like not to be respected sometimes. But you can't let that be the driving force. You still have to be comfortable with who you are, what your profession is, and really what you're trying to accomplish. So hopefully we have a few more smiles after my little talk. But the biggest thing is, I, I, since I have two minutes, I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> the reason I threw this up is there was a time when people stood up for things that they believe in. And there was a time when people weren't afraid to do something. Everyone knows this picture. Everyone knows who this person is. And there's a reason he became famous, because someone killed his boss on his ranch and he did not think that that was good and he was going to take matters in his own hands. Now, we can't take matters in our own hands, or can we? And so I'm asking you, sometimes when we say, I referred him off, is that enough? Or do we need to take matters in our own hands and be more proactive so that we can help our athletes down the road? Thank you very much. Again, to complete the ECU coursework, go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash C-E-U. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash C-E-U. You can earn sport earn C-E-U credit for both of these lectures here put together by Trinity University, the Sports Medicine Workshop. So again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash C-E-U to sign up, complete the coursework, and earn your free C-E-U's. Thanks to San Antonio Methodist. Thanks.